Welcome to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler, The Gangster is suitable for ages 12 and up and contains graphic violence. The Gangster is also available as a signed, numbered, limited edition hardcover while supplies last. To order, go to scottsigler.com slash store. junkies guess what go ahead and guess you didn't guess i'll tell you this week marks the 16th anniversary of our very first ever podcast episode we dropped the first episode of earth core on march 24th 2005 that's right 16 years ago this podcast is now old enough to drive a friggin car and how many episodes does that make for Well, with the Sunday episodes, the Friday fixes, the Tuesday terrors, the laughing in the faces of death, the story smacks, and many more, the episode you are listening to right now is our 1,245th. As Keanu Reeves once said, whoa, that is a lot of episodes. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of episodes. That is an average of 77.8 episodes per year. 6.48 episodes per month, 1.62 episodes a week for 16 years. No matter how long you have been listening, we are glad you are here. We are glad you share your time with us each week. You freaking rock. So let's get you caught up on the story so far. Then we're going to go record another 1,245 episodes. Previously on The Gangster, Gwen received an ultimatum from, of all sentience, Ma Tweedy, who told the Splithead to steer clear of conflicts with Quentin. As if that wasn't problematic enough, Wakan Reed is about to deliver a report that will cast a veil of suspicion over one of the leader's key underlings. Meanwhile, the woman who saved Quentin's life gave him a hypodermic gun with a strange substance to use against Greedock, what is in the vial? Find out next on The Gangster, episode number 17. Secrets Things had moved beyond Greedock's ability to control. He hated that. In the days that followed Carol Tweedy's visit... Greedock had explored ways to get at Barnes, yet not lose half of his starters in retaliation. So far, he'd found no viable option. Any hostility toward Barnes, or his sister, or the Tweedies, or anyone else involved for that matter, might mean a labor strike. A labor strike that would kill the upcoming season. A labor strike that would savage Greedock's reputation, make him look weaker than he'd ever looked before. To make matters worse, Barnes had filed a flight plan that had him leaving Earth orbit in two standard days. The flight plan said he was taking the Hypatia to Whipath. That was, most likely, a lie. Barnes would go into hiding. There was too much heat on him to do anything else, really. Hiding was the smart thing to do, and Barnes was very smart. 
in the modified Hypatia. Once Barnes went dark, Greedock knew it was possible the human could stay hidden until he chose to not stay hidden. Even if Greedock found a strategy that would let him avoid the labor strike, yet take action against Barnes, he wouldn't know where Barnes was. Infuriating. Greedock heard Massal shuffling feet several seconds before the worker entered the chamber. So unlike him to make any noise at all. Lakan Reed is here, Shamakath, the worker said. He came unannounced. Massal's uniform, normally so well-pressed, so perfect, looked just a bit less perfect than normal. Those yellow fibers in his cornea were far more pronounced. Your appearance is subpar, Greedock said. I am not pleased. Massal swept his petty palp hand across his antennae. My apologies, Shamakath. I have been studying game footage of several prospects for the upcoming season and also gathering information from our scouts on what players are desired by other Tier 1 teams. The worker likely hadn't slept in days. The same thing had happened the off-season before and the off-season before that. If Massal's gift for identifying talent paid off, it would be worth it. And yet, Massal was Greedock's representative. The worker had no excuse for not being meticulous about his appearance. Anything less reflected badly on his shamakath. You are disgusting, Credoc said. Clean yourself up. Do not embarrass me like this again. Massal's eyes swirled with dark green. The chamber doors opened. A smiling Wakan Reed strode in. Good day, shamakath. I'm exceptionally busy, Reed, Greedock said. Why did you come unannounced? Why not make an actual appointment? The smile faded. Reed glanced at Massal, then back to Greedock. Let's just say there are sentients who might be concerned about my findings, the human said. May we have a word in private? And by private, I mean actually private. Greedock heard Virak stir, heard the creak of the warrior's carapace as he reached for his sidearm. Virak, be still! Reed's smile returned. He removed his hat, held it in his hands. Could Virak be right about Reed? Could Reed be preparing to make a move, perhaps at the behest of Stedmar Osborne? No, that was illogical. Gristle had and others would have searched Reed, made sure he had no weapons. An attempt here, now, offered Reed zero chance to survive. The idea that Reed might try to kill Greedock wasn't just illogical. It was stupid. And yet... Missal, get out, Greedock said. Virak, stay. Reed's grin widened. Half is better than none, I suppose. Missal left the chamber. That's what I wanted anyway, Reed said. I have doubts about him. Doubts about Missal? Greedock thought of letting Virak kill Reed right then and there. Missal is not a concern, the leader said. He is my most trusted underling. No, he's the underling you trust the most. Reed shrugged. There's a world of difference, Shamakath. Virak thinks that you are a threat, and you think Massal is one? Are you saying that Massal has been compromised? That I should eliminate him before he attacks me? A ludicrous thought. Reed looked at Virak. That true, big fella? When have I ever given reason for you to doubt my loyalty to Greedock? I trust my instincts, Virak said. I do not like- Silence! 
Greedock's single word echoed in the small room. Distrust, even among his inner circle. This was the result of losing face. And if he didn't do something to bolster his position among his own organization and in the galaxy at large, things would continue to disintegrate. Reed, Greedock said, are you saying that Massal the Efficient is a threat? Reed glanced off, stared at the empty niche where Hokor's statue had been intended to stand. He's not a physical threat, the human said. I don't believe he would harm you in any way, but I wonder where his true loyalty lies. I don't mean to tell you how to handle your underlings, Greedock, but some things you should learn of sooner rather than later. And why is that? The human stared up, met Greedock's gaze. Because I'm very good at what I do, Reed said. I found what Sandoval was looking for. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Contraband. On the Hypatia's small galley table, another game of obelisk was in play. This time, Chodo versus Michael Kimberlin. Chodo stared at the board. Mike quietly read from The Hidden Queens. Quentin leaned against the counter, watching the game, eating a sandwich, chicken breast, hard-boiled eggs, and bananas, that Chodo had made per Marcus Diablo's diet plan. Quentin wanted to hold it with his right hand, get at least some enjoyment out of the food, but he did not. He held it with his left hand, and holding it hurt. The more he engaged his left arm and courted that pain, the more he could get used to it. Or so Diablo thought, anyway. Every time Quentin lifted the sandwich to take a bite, that strange pain sliced through his forearm. He would beat this. He would. 
Diablo's constant training had caused Quentin to drop to 375 pounds, five pounds below his normal playing weight. Marcus wanted that weight back on, but he wasn't about to let up on the training. That meant Quentin had to eat six, even seven times a day. Mike was sitting in the same place Fred had sat in, yet the massive heavy G lineman made both chair and table alike look like a child's toy furniture. In his huge hands, the hardcover book looked like a prop made for a holo about a giant trying to get along in a world of little people. After Pierrefort left, Quentin had read the highlighted sections of both books. The text made it obvious that the hypo contained gibblejuance, a hormone that turned quith leaders into quith queens. Jodo, Quentin said. It said in the Hidden Queens that quith females can't own property. Is that true? The warrior answered without looking up from the board. It is the law. It has always been this way. Quentin had grown up on a world where things had always been this way. Tradition wasn't a defense for right and wrong. Bad things could be traditional, just as good things could be. It wasn't Quentin's job to question an entire culture, especially one that wasn't his. Big Mike glanced at the board. Shoto, you should make your next move. I would prefer to be finished with this game before we depart Earth. We do not depart until tomorrow, Chodo said. Mike nodded. Exactly. The tiniest flutter of black across Chodo's cornea. The victory had approved the Hypatia's departure from Earth orbit. Tomorrow, Becca would finish her vacation with her parents and return to the yacht. Mike had filed a flight plan that showed the Hypatia leaving for Whipath in the Wittok Kingdom. Once in the kingdom, however, they weren't going to Whipath. Quentin would engage the yacht's Portath-made stealth mode, and the Hypatia would slip over to Weirod instead. No help from Frost this time. No fake ship name provided by Wycor the Aware. Aside from Quentin, Mike, and Shoto, no one knew where the Hypatia was going. Diablo didn't even know. Becca would learn tomorrow. The plan was to spend two weeks far outside Weirod's orbit. Quentin could focus on his training with Marcus. Few sentients, if any, would know they were there at all, including Greedock the Splithead. Chodo, tell me the truth, Quentin said. Pierrefort told me Greedock has gone after loved ones, families, children. Has he really done things like that before? Curls of red-orange swirled on Chodo's cornea. He has, the warrior said. I have done things of that nature for him at his orders. Quentin had become close with Chodo. It hurt to think of Chodo killing people. He'd killed children? That concept would have been abhorrent to Quentin before, but with his own child on the way, it was now unthinkable. How could Chodo have done something like that? Because he'd been ordered to. Because he was hardwired to obey. It hadn't mattered what Chodo wanted. In the Quith culture, only a Shamakath needs and wants mattered. I'm sorry you had to go through that, Quentin said, simultaneously genuine in the sentiment and also feeling ridiculous for giving condolences to the perpetrator of crimes and not the victims. Chodo leaned closer to the obelisk board, focused on his next move. Your apology is unnecessary, he said. You had nothing to do with those actions. You have never asked me to behave dishonorably. 
and I hope you never will, were the words the warrior left unspoken. But Quentin heard them, saw them as if they were engraved into Chodo's carapace. The warrior had done what he'd been told to do, yes, but he'd hated himself for it. It's in the past, Quentin said. I don't care about the past, my friend. Mike snapped the book shut. No disrespect intended to Chodo, Q, he said. But perhaps it is best if you and I discuss this in private. Chodo moved his piece, then leaned back. If you are concerned, I will learn the vial contains gibble juants. I already know, the warrior said. Considering it was delivered along with those two books, the context made the vial's contents rather obvious. Mike looked at Quentin, raised an eyebrow. Chodo can stay, Quentin said. Whatever happens, he's going to be with us, so he should know what's what. Mike pursed his lips slightly, a sign that he was annoyed. Quentin knew the man was right more often than he was wrong, but he wasn't always right. A fact made obvious by Mike's time in the Guild. Let's be clear about a few things, the heavy G said. Are you aware that under Concordia law, possession of Dibblejuance is a capital offense? Wait, what? Quentin set his plate on the counter. You mean like, like they kill you for it? That is what capital offense means, Chodo said. Mike absently reached out to the obelisk board, moved a three-layer stack to a defensive position. That level of punishment is a logical deterrent, the heavy G said. Quith law doesn't differentiate between a leader who chooses to turn female and one who is forced to do so. Without the threat of a stiff penalty, rival leaders would try using gibblejuants on each other all the time. Which is what Villani obviously wants me to do, Quentin said. If I turn Greedock female, he loses his legal property, any legit businesses. His power base evaporates. Chodo moved a two-layer stack forward. You should store the vial and the hypodermic case in the Hypatia's secret compartment, the warrior said. The one the Portath believed can't be scanned. Mike nodded. An excellent suggestion. The heavy G added a layer to his rear tower. Chodo made a counter move, pressing his attack. Maybe Vellani isn't really after Greedock, Quentin said. Maybe she's setting me up. Could she sick Concordia assistant police on us or something? Kimberlin split a four-layer tower into two stacks, countering Chodo's advance. Possibly, the heavy G said. The Hypatia is covered by GFL diplomatic immunity. System police can't board this ship without due cause, and even then they can only search for weapons and explosives. If Volani tips off Concordia authorities that you possess the Gibblejuance, then, yes, it's possible she could be setting you up for a fall. But only if you return to Ionath or somewhere else in the Concordia, as there is no Kretorakian imperial law against possessing the stuff. But since Fulani can't know for sure if you will go back, or if you will bring the substance with you instead of discarding it, it seems an inefficient way for her to frame you. You're reasonably protected, as long as you're not in Concordia space. Concordia space, which just so happened to be Quentin's home. No problem there, right? Keeping the gibble joint sounded like the equivalent of hand-feeding a round bug. One slip-up, and he was done. Greedock was usually the one treating real life like an obelisk board, 
but now it felt like Villani was the one making towers and sliding stacks. Yes, keeping this stuff was dangerous, but what if it wound up actually being the solution to the Greedock problem? What do you think, Mike? If we did use it on Greedock, I mean, could this work? Could it work? Mike thought, nodded. Yes, I believe it could, but using it would bring extensive risks. You have to hand it to Villani. If you turn Greedock into a Quith Queen, her biggest rival is effectively out of the way. Quentin didn't know about the inner world of gangsters, and he didn't want to know. All he cared about was defending himself and his family. This is literally a magic potion that would solve all of my problems. It seems too convenient. Oh, it won't be convenient, Mike said. A Quith leader will have to absorb all of Greedock's assets. That includes ownership of the Krakens. That hadn't occurred to Quentin. A new owner? It would have to be someone very powerful, Chodo said. Greedock is one of the galaxy's richest sentients. There would be many suitors vying to acquire what he has built. How will you manage that process? Quentin had no idea. Someone powerful? He didn't know many leaders who... No, he did know one. Perhaps the most powerful leader in existence. I can ask Charlton Amoral. Mike's eyebrows rose. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. I forgot that you're now pals with the Lord Governor of the Quith Concordia. Quentin's face flushed hot. We're not pals. He just gave me his contact information at Hokor's funeral. All I'm saying is, I could see if he'd help Greedock find a suitable, uh, mate or whatever. I do not know why you are surprised, Michael, Chodo said. Of course Quentin is a personal friend with our Lord Governor. It is as if you do not understand how important Quentin is. Mike grinned. So important. Quentin's face grew even hotter. Can we get back to Villani? Sure, Mike said. Overall, this ploy does make sense from her perspective. She or her people can't get close to Greedock. You can. If you do this, her biggest rival is removed. There will be significant confusion. If she wants to gobble up some of Greedock's criminal enterprises, she'll take advantage of that confusion. And if you do the act, Quentin, she's in the clear as far as Frost is concerned or the rest of the syndicates. If you say she gave you the gibble juants, she simply denies it. Frankly, her plan is brilliant. Chodo stacked his lead tower six pieces high. He was going all in on his attack. Villani didn't make sick of the death of female, the warrior said. She assassinated him, then took over his organization in a bloody coup. Without even looking at the board, Mike placed his game piece, creating a full block of Chodo's obvious strategy. Mike had lured the warrior in, leaving him nowhere to move. The game was effectively over. Villani was in Sika's organization, Mike said. She's not in Greedox. I'm guessing there's more to her strategy. Maybe she thinks she can get female Greedock to sign over his assets, which lets Villani take over without violence. Assassinating Greedock outright, on the other hand, will create an instant power struggle. Imagine what Greedock's lieutenants would do to grab pieces of his empire. Quentin knew one of those lieutenants personally, 
Stedmar Osborne, owner of the McCovey Raiders. Stedmar had been under Greedock's thumb for as long as Quentin had known the man, but Stedmar was ambitious. In a fight to fill a power vacuum, there was no telling what he would do. Big Mike was right, though. This was an impressive strategy. If Volani could get Quentin to do her dirty work, that was. Would he? Someday, Greedock was coming for Quentin. But that day might be years away. And if Quentin became the Kraken's coach, it might never come at all. Quentin shook his head to clear away that thought. He was the Kraken's quarterback, not the coach. We'll hold on to the gibble juants for now, he said. I found it fascinating there were no pictures of Quith Queens in either book. I wonder what they look like. Chodo stood. I hope you do not find out, he said, because I would be obligated to take your life. No black in that single eye, no color at all. Chodo wasn't playing, and he wasn't exaggerating either. Some things, apparently, ran deeper than blind respect for one's Shamakath. For the record, Mike said, I did mention we should have this discussion in private. Chodo opened the obelisk case, started putting the pieces away. He knew Mike had won. Mike closed his eyes, tapped the corner of the hidden queens lightly against his forehead as if he was trying to remember something. Quentin, tell me about that woman again. What did she say her name was? Virafor. No, I mean what she told you when you first asked her. Quentin didn't understand the question, then remembered. Oh, when she said she was nothing? Kimberlin's eyes opened wide. Nothing, yes. And something about being an insect? She said she was an ant, Quentin said. Mike activated his palm up. I tracked through the nav menu. Ah, here it is. I thought that sounded familiar, but I couldn't place it at first. There's supposedly a secret organization known as the Dasvidali. The word means ant in an ancient earth language called Cherokee. Apparently, they take in young orphans and train them to be assassins and saboteurs. I do not understand the name, Chodo said. I am familiar with ants. They are a delicacy, but they are small and harmless. Why would ants be a name for dangerous sentience? Chodo didn't understand, but Quentin did. Because you don't notice ants, he said. You don't pay attention to them because they are nothing. Mike eye-tracked through the palm-up display. The Dawes Vidali supposedly take their name from species of ants. I think Quentin's rescuer is named after this one. Myrmechia piriformis. He held out his hand, showing Quentin and Shoto the image on his palm-up. A spindly black insect with red feet, antennae, and long, lethal pincers. That looks delicious, Chodo said. Quentin read the text beneath the image. Myrmechia piriformis holds you with pincers while it injects a lethal venom. It is also called the bulldog ant for its ferocity and focus during an attack. It's known as the deadliest ant on earth. He thought of the way Pirifor had moved in the hospital, how she'd taken out hitmen as easily as Quentin might dodge a tackler. Deadly, to say the least. She had killed them so effortlessly. No hesitation. Those men turned into lifeless ragdolls. 
The gun jumping in his hand, Sandoval's head snapping back, the body falling dead before it hit the ground, blood spilling from a hole in the forehead. Quentin? He blinked, came back to the real world. Kimberlin looked concerned. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. The memory had leapt up, taken him over. He'd killed a man. The thought hung inside of him like a cold, coiled spring. He'd taken sentient life. To survive, would he have to do that again? It was all too much. Quentin couldn't bear to deal with thoughts of Greedock anymore. Becca gets back tomorrow, he said. Do not tell her about the case Pierrefort brought, all right? As you request, Quentin, Chodo said. Big Mike sighed. You just got married, and already you're keeping secrets? Mike was going to chide him about keeping secrets? Nice. Just don't mention it, all right? As you wish, the heavy G said. Maybe it was the wrong choice, especially for newlyweds, but Quentin felt that the less Becca knew about the Gibblejuants, the safer she would be. If he was caught with it, for whatever reason, she would have no knowledge. He could take the fall alone, making sure his wife and child didn't face the same consequences he would. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Chodo, Quentin said. It was going to be a surprise, but I'll tell you now. Becca is bringing back food from Mr. Sam's. There's a franchise on Hudson Bay Station where she's flying out of. And Chodo, she's going to have them make you a special dish called Tania Sanginata. That sounds tasty, Chodo said. What is it? Spicy beef tapeworms. Mike's lip curled up. My God, that is beyond disgusting. Chodo's cornea swirled with waves of yellow-orange. Beef tapeworms? You would do that for me, Shamikath? There was so much excitement and longing in the warrior's voice that Quentin didn't have the heart to lecture him about the name. Absolutely. Anything for my friend and teammate. You won't be eating tapeworms, Quentin, Mike said. But whatever Becca brings back is unlikely to be part of Diablo's nutrition plan. Quentin rolled his eyes. I'll take the extra laps or push-ups or whatever he can deal out. It'll be worth it. Besides, Becca's bringing enough for him, too. He grew up in the purest nation. He'll love it. Speaking of the nation, are you going to watch that special report that's scheduled to reach us tomorrow? What special report? Mike squinted, suspicious. Seriously? You haven't heard about the recent spate of uprisings in the nation? No, I haven't. I don't live there anymore, so why would I care? Because they supposedly involve you, Mike said. Me? What the hell do they have to do with me? The heavy G shrugged. Something you said, apparently. Since the new Grand Mullah took over, there's been a total lockdown on news coming out of the nation. This report supposedly penetrates that veil. Quentin had nothing to do with the land of his birth, yet somehow his name was involved in uprisings? He would watch the report, see what this nonsense was all about. Becca would watch it with him. Maybe Diablo would be interested as well. Diablo. Quentin glanced at the galley clock. He was almost late for his next round of training. Gotta go, he said and shoved the rest of the sandwich in his mouth as he sprinted out of the galley. 
You have been listening to The Gangster, book six in the Galactic Football League series, written and narrated by Scott Ziegler. Follow Scott on Instagram and Twitter, where he is at Scott Ziegler, one word, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Scott Ziegler. For more information on the Galactic Football League series and for more free audiobook podcasts, visit scottsigler.com. The Gangster was directed by A. Sigler, engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2020, Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song They're Watching Me by the band Super Weapon. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.